Thank you for joining our podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. Stay tuned as together we'll study God's Word. Happy New Year. Happy New Decade, everybody. Good to see everyone. Are you glad to see me? Yeah, good. I'm glad to see you. I've been away for a little bit, but it's, good. it's great to be back. Hey, I want to do two things. I want to introduce our morning uh, speaker this morning, but before that, I want to say thank you and put something in perspective. Uh, we entered into a G4 giving challenge uh, for the end of the year. I want to put that in perspective. We were looking for uh, an octane boost for our ministry uh, at year's end, and um, boy, did you come through. We sat and prayed and asked God for an audacious number and thought, Lord, would you be so gracious uh, to provide $1.5 million uh, at year's end, above and beyond our regular giving to boost and fuel ministry, to fuel it locally through the local schools, what we're doing, locally on the streets of Redwood City, through Street Life and our partner ministries, globally as far as our, our work in the Congo and all around. And I'm happy to report, I'm amazed to report that uh, what we did together was amazing. God pricked hearts. Uh, let me show you the number that came in. $1.364 million. Can we thank God for that? Oh my goodness. So um, if by chance you didn't uh, have a chance to participate or you thought, oh my gosh, I wanted to be a part of that, you still can, even though it's past the year's end, uh, we welcome that. But thank you so much for your generous hearts. Thank you for giving again and again. You have no idea how that's going to fuel ministry uh, for us going into the new year. Praise God. Let me give thanks to him. Father, we do not want to be like the nine lepers who were touched by you, who witnessed the supernatural and never returned to say thank you. Lord, thank you. Uh, we thank you because you've given this church almost for seven decades a heart for the city, a heart for the peninsula, a heart for the people around the world to know you. And Father, we take this as a gracious gift from you to fuel the gospel again and again and again to more and more people, to raise up disciples, to bring Christ where he's not known nor expected, to wow people with your love. So we thank you. You're so good. Be honored, Lord, with the stewardship uh, of these and every gift that comes through PCC. We pray this in Christ's name. Everyone said? Amen. So excited about this series, Kingdom Come, here as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is what life would look like if God had his way. And what we're trying to do is show, uh, is so important to that, it's kind of our theme for the whole year, for 2020, Kingdom Come, is uh, to equip us all to be kingdom ambassadors. The kingdom of God is at hand. And I'm very grateful to have our morning speaker. Uh, he is a, a seasoned pastor. He started his work at the Hollywood Presbyterian Church uh, down in LA for 10 years, was a lead pastor at San Clemente Presbyterian Church for 17 years, jumped over to Fuller Seminary where Todd gives uh, leadership to shepherds and to the function of leadership within the church. He's written uh, numerous books. The book that 
triggered us to bring him up here today is a latest book. I told him, I feel like you've been reading our mail. Uh, it's called Canoeing Through the Mountains, Adaptive Leadership for Churches. This afternoon, he'll be spending the whole afternoon with our lay and pastoral leadership team about uh, how to lead well in these times here on the peninsula. Todd has one wife, that's a good thing, and two grown kids. Would you please give, I told him of all the services, this is gonna be the most welcoming of them all. So would you give a welcome to Todd Volsinger? <laughs> I told you. <laughs> all right, the other services are gonna have to keep up. That was awesome. I gotta tell you, I loved that opening set of worship. It like brought me back to my Hollywood Presbyterian days. I thought to myself, my old boss Lloyd Ogilvie would, is rejoicing in heaven after hearing that medley about the king. Th thank you for that. I, I haven't experienced that in a while. So that was a, just a great, great gift. It is wonderful to get to be with you, especially on this theme, this theme of the kingdom come. This is at the center of my heart. I believe that what the church is to be is the answer to that prayer. That when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, when they came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, he immediately gives them what I'm going to talk to you today about is like a two-step process that it will embed the very values of God in their hearts. And what he wanted more for them to know than anything was that if you're a follower of me, every single place you put your feet... Everything that you grab with your hands, everything you embrace, everything you focus on needs to become a place where the will of God is done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your grace, your truth, your love, your justice. Every single place, every workplace we enter into, every family situation, every time we have an opportunity on the freeway during rush, no, it can't be that, um, but every other place that we find ourselves, we need to be the answer to the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, on earth now as it is in heaven always. And so what I want to talk about today is the way in which worship helps us to do that and what teaches us to become that. And literally, we see this in the Lord's Prayer. It starts in worship. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. And we just did that. We just had that moment. And then immediately it turns us and our attention toward that next petition, your kingdom come, your will be done. So here's what I want to do in my few minutes with you. I want to talk about how we become those kinds of people. Those people who, wherever we are, are an embodiment of God's love, his grace, his will, his truth, and what hinders us from doing so. And I'm going to start with the second one. What hinders us from doing so? What keeps us from revealing the kingdom of God to others? And I want to tell you a story, and I'm thinking about it. It's at the top of mind to me because it, was, it happened to me one, on one of my earlier visits up to this area. I, I got invited by a group of Christians who love Fuller Seminary to gather together down the road in Palo Alto in a lawyer's office with a group of folks who um, all of them were involved in the kind of startup world. They were venture capital people. They were startup people. They were Google people. They were Stanford people. And they gathered together to help me in my work at Fuller. 
So my job at Fuller is to be the person who figures out how to take the resources of Fuller Seminary and just give them out to the church. Just how do, how do we get them out there to help people in the church wherever they are? Whether they need a degree from us or not, we want to serve them. And so I gathered with this group of people, and one of my friends invited this group to meet with me, and they said, Todd, you're starting this new venture. What if you went to this group and kind of just gave them your pitch, the thing that you were working on? And I said, oh, I'd love to. So I go walking into this really cool conference room. I got my PowerPoint presentation. I'm kind of nervous talking to these folks who've done all these really creative things. And I said, okay. And they said, here's my presentation. And they said, well, wait, let's be clear what you know what you're doing here. And we want you to talk to us like you're trying to raise a bunch of money from us. We're not giving you any money, but we want you just to give us your pitch. I said, great, I'm ready. They said, okay, and here's the second thing. Before you start, tell us, who are you trying to help, actually? What's the difference you want to make? I said, oh, I got that. Got it. No, no problem. Uh, we, want to, we want to help pastors and church leaders who don't need our degrees, but they want our research, and they want our scholarship, and they want our resources. We just want to figure out how we can help them. They go, great. I launch into my pitch. I go 10 minutes. I finish with my PowerPoint. Click, set down the clicker, and I look around the room, and they're all giggling. <laughs> they're looking at each other, and they're laughing. And I go, what? And one of them looks at me and says, you've been doing that presentation around Fuller a lot, haven't you? I said, oh, yeah, administration, faculty, students, groups of people, people I'm trying to recruit on my team. He said, great, because you told us what you want to do is make an impact in the world, but what you just gave us is a pitch of why this would be really, really good for Fuller. Oh. They said, Todd... Look it, if you want to do anything in this world that makes a difference, you gotta make a difference for other people, not for yourself. You gotta figure out where people are in pain or in need and try to help them, not just focus on yourself. I, I get this would be good for the school, everybody wants to do stuff that's good for themselves, for their institution, but you gotta make a difference. One of them looks at me and goes, you know, it's a little bit like Jesus said, that you have to like be willing to like, you know, love our neighbor. Anytime the entrepreneur is lecturing the theologian on the Bible, it's a bad day for the theologian. But that's what I realized at that moment is that our institutional and our organizational intuition is always, always, always to default back to what's best for us, right? We talk about wanting to make an impact in the world, but then we say, but this will be great. It'll grow our attendance. We talk about wanting to love our neighbor, and then we'll say, but you know what? If we love our neighbor enough, it might revitalize our children's program. We say, oh, this would be so great. We'll make an impact out there. And you know what would be great is it could raise tuition. And the next thing we know, we realize is that we're caught because our natural tendency is to think about us. And what I want you to hold on to today is that at the center of Jesus' own teaching is this notion that if we want to make an impact, really make an impact, so that God is seen in the world, our focus has to be about being out listening to where people are in real pain and bringing our real resources to their points of pain. You see, Jesus taught this, right? Matthew chapter 22 a group of religious leaders come to Jesus and ask him, um, which is the commandment in the law is the greatest? Now, this is a trick question. 
Because this is, what this is really frankly is like, this is like an entrance exam question. If you can't get this one right, we're not listening to you on anything else. Everybody knows this question. If you were raised in the Jewish tradition, you knew this question by heart. There is one answer for this question. The answer here is a little bit like asking a Christian kid today who was raised in the church, like, what is the gospel? And they give you John 3.16, right? Because this is the answer. The answer is really clear. There is one answer. It's out of Deuteronomy. It's called the Shema. It means, oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And then he, Jesus says it. What's the greatest command? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. I believe at that moment, all those religious leaders went, okay, good. Boy knows his stuff. Good thing. Okay. Good. And they began to turn around, and then Jesus messes up the answer. At the next moment, he throws it right into the wastebasket. Because what he does at this moment, he's, he's asked, what is the one greatest commandment? And he gives them two answers. You see, this is what they grew up believing. What's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Every single morning, you teach this to your children. Every night when you tuck them into bed, you remind them of it again. When they walk out the door in the morning, you say, you're going off to school, but don't forget what you're doing is you're loving the Lord your God. When they come back into the home, you say, when you enter back into this home, what you're going to do this evening when we're together as a family is we're going to love the Lord our God. We love God. This is what we're about. We love God. We are about God. And Jesus takes this amazing statement about loving God, and he crams in a verse from Leviticus. This obscure little verse in the middle of a chapter that is on so many different things that you couldn't even tell them off the top of your head because we've ignored them all. He plucks one out, crams it into the Shema. It's like he took the Apostles' Creed and he decided to mess with it, right? Do you grow up in an Apostles' Creed tradition? You know, every now and then we get together and we'll talk about what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And it swells to a crescendo and it finishes with the great line. And I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And if all of a sudden, right as you finished, you went ready to say amen. And someone said, and everybody should go on a mission trip. Huh? I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And everybody should tithe. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting, and everybody should share their faith with their neighbors, read the Bible, have a devotion every day. Whatever it is that you try to cram into the Apostles' Creed, someone in the room would say, whoa, 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 whoa. Those are good things. But you don't mess with the creed. The creed's the most important thing. The creed is the thing that all of us believe in. The creed is the thing that we all must hold. To be a Christian, you have to hold the creed. There's other good things. And Jesus himself crams in a verse from the Torah, another Bible verse. And there are some scholars who believe that this is why he was crucified. Because it's one thing for us to say we are going to be people who believe that our identity is about loving God. Jesus says, if you want to be a person who loves the God I'm revealing, that God wants you to love your neighbor. They are equal, he says. Equal. 
two commandments, not one, two, not one. And this two-step is at the center of what it means to be a kingdom person. So let me show you again how it works. Our resistance is that we want to make it about ourselves. Our, the answer is that we have to be disoriented in worship, to turn away from ourselves to God and reoriented to our neighbor. So first of all, the first step, becoming the answer to Jesus' prayer begins in worship. So congratulations, you all did the first step. You're here this morning. This is the place where we remind ourselves once a week, whether we need to or not, that there is a God and you're not him. That there is a God in the universe who's in charge of everything and we're not that God. That what we need more than anything else is to get over our idolatry of ourselves and once a week come before the Lord and be reminded, you are the Lord of all creation. You are the one, hallowed is your name. You are the one in whom we live and move and have our being. You're the one. You see, it's natural for us even to come to worship a little bit like the way I showed up in that conference room. Oh yes, I want to love the Lord, but what I really want is to get something out of this for myself. I want to love the Lord, but what I really hope is they'll sing my favorite hymn like they did for me today. I want to love the Lord. I want to give myself to God. I want to be reminded that he is great, but what I really, really hope is that they won't do any praise songs. Oh my gosh, I don't want to clap. I'm so tired of clapping. I want to love the Lord. I want to give myself to God no matter what. But what I hope is my friends are there. I get it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's natural, right? It's a natural response. It's why when you get on an airplane and they tell you if the oxygen masks ever come down, you've got to take care of yourself first. If you're not breathing, you're not going to be any good for anybody else. So it's a natural inclination to want to focus upon ourselves. It's natural. But what the scriptures teach us is that natural inclination, if we're going to be people who live supernaturally for the sake of God, need to be willing to lay that aside and serve the Lord. To be able to, be able to give ourselves to God for the sake of God. Years ago, before I went to San Clemente Presbyterian, I was interviewing with a church to be a senior pastor. I was in that stage of my life, and a church came to me, and they said, Todd, we'd like you to consider coming and being our pastor. We know we need to grow the church. We want to reach in to make an impact in our neighborhood. We want to see more people come to Jesus. I said, that's great. I love that. And then a person said, almost unconsciously, and quite frankly, if we don't grow, we'll never be able to afford to keep these buildings. I stopped. I went, what? They said, well, we've got to grow. We've done the math. You know, basically, we're going to have to shut the doors here. We've got to get about another 100 members a year for the next five years, or we're never going to be able to survive. I said, you need to know that every single person that you're reaching out to with the gospel is going to sniff that out the second they come in the door, right? They're going to know that the reason why you're growing, yes, you want them to know Jesus, but you're also hoping that they can keep your nice, fancy building. Because it's natural, so what worship teaches us to do is to disorient us. It reminds us that naturally we'll focus on ourselves. that once a week we need to come before the God and say, God, it is not me, but you. Not to my, ourselves, but to you be the glory. You are the focus of our lives. You are the one in whom we live and move and have our being. You're the one in which we give ourselves to you. You're the one. And so, so with that first step is it gives ourselves to God. We will love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
We will teach that to our children in the morning. We will tuck them into bed at night with it. We will make sure our grandchildren know it, that life is found in loving God. And then when you turn your attention to God, when you disorient yourself away from self to God, God does this amazing, unpredictable thing. He reorients us to our neighbor. We say, God, we turn our, our attention from ourselves to you. And he says, thank you for looking at me. Now look there. We go, God, we want to see your face. And he says, thank you. Bless you. Now look at the face of the neighbor. What Jesus says, there's two commandments, not one. The second is like it, he says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is so profoundly rooted in the core of what it means to be a Christian, to be a kingdom person, that even people who didn't have neighbors believe this. In the fourth and fifth century, there was a group of monks who went out to the deserts of Egypt because they wanted to seek the face of God. One of them was named Abba John. Abba John was known for being a holy man. He lived by himself as a hermit in the desert. And he would seek the Lord in fasting and prayer all day long. But people would hear about this holy man in the middle of the desert and they would go out and they would interrupt his prayers so that they could speak to him and ask him questions and seek counsel and spiritual direction. And one day in the middle of the desert, Abba John said to a person this parable. He said, you don't build a house by starting with the roof and working down. You start with the foundation. They said, what does that mean? It's the same question Jesus has asked, right? What's the basic? What's the foundation? What do you build your life on? What do you build your spiritual life on? What's the foundation? What's the most important thing? He's out in the middle of the desert. He has given up everything. He lives in poverty. He spends his life in prayer. You would expect him to say prayer or giving up your riches or, giving, or living um, to seek the face of God or worship. What does he say? The foundation is our neighbor. The foundation is our neighbor whom we must win. The neighbor is where we start. Every commandment of Christ depends on this said the man who had no neighbors. This reminder, dear friends, is that the foundation of what it means to be Christian is that it means to be a person who deeply loves God, cannot love God without looking to our neighbor. One time Jesus gave this parable to a group of people and immediately a debate broke out. I'm convinced he was doing it to a seminary faculty. And, and so... A debate broke out. Well, okay, really, that's very great. Thank you so much, Jesus. But really, what we need to know, know is uh, who's our neighbor? Like, like really, I mean, that's, I mean uh, hermeneutically, how do you consider the neighbor? Or phenomenologically, is, is it about really about neighboring? Or isn't it really about being neighborly? Or maybe what we should th consider is, in our heart of hearts, does anybody really have a neighbor anyway? With air quotes. Jesus cuts right through it, right? He tells a story. He tells a story of a man who's in pain. And the religious leaders walk by him. And the scholars walk by him. And the Samaritan, who is a person who is an outcast in the society, walks up to him. 
cares for him, puts him in an inn, pays the bill, and says, whatever he needs, take care of it. Jesus made it really clear our neighbor is the person in pain who needs the gifts and resources that we have. My friends in that conference room in Palo Alto were telling me the same thing. Todd, what really matters if you're going to be an administrator of a seminary that teaches people how to be leaders in the world is to teach them to know that the center of it is not what's good for the institution. That what really matters is that they have the capacity to listen to the pain in the world and bring our gifts and resources to those pain. Let me just say one more moment about how radical this is. Almost every religion will tell you that the most important thing is that you have to get right before your God. Our God says that when you trust in me, what I mostly want you to do is do right by your neighbor. Receive the grace of Christ that I give you. Receive the love that I offer you. Look to me and together we will turn our gaze toward the person in pain in our midst. Do you hear Jesus' words? God, disorient, God who disorients himself, us away from ourselves doesn't keep the attention on himself, but puts the attention on our neighbors. Abba John wasn't the only person who did believe this. Martin Luther was asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? What's the root of Christian vocation? What does it mean for you to be a person who responds to the call of God? And his answer was simply this. The Christian vocation is to respond to the call of God by, you're, you're going to know the answer now, loving your neighbor. He put it this way. He said, this means that we don't just do religious things sometimes, said Luther, who had been a priest who left the priesthood. He said, it means that in everyday life, in your everyday work, in every opportunity, you're asking yourself about what it means for you to serve your neighbor, to see the people in need or in pain and to bring what you have to them. So it means that in every workshop, with every tool, with every task we take on, or maybe in our context, with every Excel spreadsheet or laptop or computer or lesson plan or legal brief or project, we're asking the question, how will this serve the people around me and meet them in their pain? Luther said, the Bible has been put into your workshop, into your hand, into your heart. It teaches and preaches how you should treat your neighbor. Dear friends who want to be a congregation that lives out your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven who prays the prayer of saying, God, you are Father, holy is your name. Let us be the people who embody your presence to others. Let us be the people who reveal your grace and your mercy, your holiness, your truth to others. If we want to be people who truly embody the goodness of Christ, I would say look to Christ and not ourselves and know that Christ is going to have you immediately look to your neighbor, to the person who's in pain, who needs the gifts or resources that you have to bring. When I was a pastor, I used to think about this a lot. I used to think about what would it be like for the kingdom of God to come to this little village in San Clemente that we lived in. 
It was a beautiful little place. It was on the, if you've ever been there, it's right on the side of the Pacific Ocean. It's right at the end of Orange County. It's just, it's, it, one side is all the ocean. The other side is the Cleveland National Forest. It's a small little town. It was, it was idyllic. People loved moving there. They wanted to raise their kids in that town. They wanted to retire in that town. It was a beautiful place to be. And I used to think all the time that what would it be like for us to really be the people who believed that those who came to San Clemente were coming there because they wanted good schools or good education or a good retirement. And what they would find is that they were going to meet the God of the universe who wanted their life to be abundant and full and filled with grace. What would it be like for them to know it? How could we live in such a way that this community would be blessed? A day will come, the scriptures say, a day will come when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Don't you wish we still had the choir, right? The entire hallelujah chorus reminds us that a day is going to come when finally the world will be made right. There'll be no more tears and no more death. There'll be no more injustice and no more unrighteousness and we will live and the world will be the way we long for it to be. And I believe the job of the church is to give people a glimpse, a taste of that, to have moments along the way. I used to say to my congregation, I want our church to be so blessing this community that when realtors are trying to sell a house and they're trying to seal the deal by saying, you really want to move here. It's a great community. They will mention our Presbyterian church before they mention the beach. <laughs> because they will say, you want to move to this place because there's this group of people who just make this place better. They're generous. They love us. They tutor our children. They work in our schools. They stand up for injustice. They work against sexual human trafficking. They, wherever there is a pain, they rush to the pain. Whenever there's a crisis, they rush to the crisis. These people are remarkable. I wanted to see real estate agents who would literally say, I don't believe what they believe, but they're remarkable. One day I asked one, somebody said to me, Todd, what does it mean for you as a pastor to believe this? I said, here's what I want more than anything. I want that if you're ever having a conversation and some, God gives you the opportunity to talk about your faith to some skeptic and some skeptic looks at you and says, oh, please, what do you think heaven's like? This is what I want you to answer. Without tongue in cheek, without batting your eyes, without any cynicism whatsoever, I want you to look that person in the eye and I want you to say, come and see. Come hang out with my family. Come to my church community. Come be with us at a potluck where we honor our seniors or be with a service where we love on our children. Come watch our children ride their Heelys down the middle of the sanctuary and watch our teenagers show up unexpectedly, awkwardly because they can't wait to see their spiritual grandparents. You want to know what heaven's like? You don't have to wait. Just come and see. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth. On wherever our feet are, wherever our hands are, wherever we embrace, wherever we speak, as it is in heaven. Lord God, Teach us to seek you first 
and to follow your gaze into the world of pain and need. Teach us to look to your eyes and then see your eyes pointing us to what we cannot see. Help us to become people who see what you are doing and respond in faith and obedience. In the name of Christ, we pray. Thank you for tuning in to our message podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. We would love the opportunity to connect with you more. We are located in Redwood City, California, and you can find us online at wearepcc.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by simply searching for We Are PCC.